This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Have you ever had an office romance? You'll want to hear what my next guest has to say. Paul Mendes is a lawyer with Lesperance Mendes Law Firm in Vancouver, British Columbia, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Paul. Good evening. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I am well, thanks. I'm just here celebrating Chinese New Year, so I'm going to break out to talk to you. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm honored. So, uh, the office affair. Yes. Uh, Love in the time of cubicles, as I like to call it. Love in the time of cubicles. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. Under the desk love, too. (laughs) In some cases, yes. Yes. Desk movement affairs. (laughs) Standing desk love. (laughs) I think I know why I like to be on your show so much. There's a lot of laughing. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, well, as it turns out, a lot of people have, or a lot of companies, frown upon fraternization in a company, but that may not uh, work according to some privacy laws. That's right. Uh, One thing that uh, anyone who has uh, had experience uh, working in a place knows, you work very closely with people, and if you're in a high-stress situation, you can often form bonds that very quickly move from friendships to uh, more intimate relationships. And if you're an employer, these uh, types of situations can really land you in some hot water. Um, One thing I would say is they're probably not so great for morale uh, because people begin to question performance reviews and discipline and things like that if there is a relationship uh, between staff or between a boss and an employee uh, in a workplace. So uh, for employers, though, it can really be a legal minefield. I can imagine. You know, mm-hmm. I one of the wor- I have to say one of the worst ones that I had heard is um, that a, a and you know being in a sexless marriage, which is one of my areas of expertise, <laughs> um, which I don't really like to broadcast, but nonetheless. Um, <laughs> Uh, I had a patient in a sexless marriage and he had, he was a CEO and he hired somebody new to the company. And at the end of the week, they had some dinner or something and he ended up having an affair with the new employee. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, really, really bad uh, situation, yes. which is then, then yeah. that landed him in my office because he got scared. Um, so privacy law limits employees power, employers power to thwart workplace That's right. Employees have some reasonable expectation of privacy, which means, generally speaking, the law tends to say an employer is not allowed to spy on their employees, track every single thing they do. And then naturally, that would be, you know, if employers, employees socialize with each other outside of work, um, the employer really has no legal right uh, to know uh, what it is that these people are doing uh, in their off hours. Very clearly, though, the employer does have a right to know what's going on in the office. And so this tension between protecting employees' privacy rights and the employer being very concerned about how the workplace functions, employee morale, those kinds of things, would be very, very uh, find a very difficult time to walk that line, balancing privacy versus the need to manage their uh, workplace. So there, there have been cases uh, where um, 
you know, employers have been awarded wrong, uh, employees have been awarded wrongful dismissal damages, uh, not just employees who have, ha- uh, say, been sexually harassed, which is what we typically think of, but, uh, you know, employees who are dismissed or retaliated against after a workplace uh, relationship ends. So very, very serious issue. And um, I'm surprised that we don't hear m- uh, more about it than we do. Uh, a very famous case that everyone is likely aware of, which I always use to illustrate the um, problems, is, of course, President Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky is a very good example of a workplace romance. One of the things that I often counsel employers on, you want to be careful if you have uh, bosses, managers, supervisors, owners having relationships uh, with employees. It's quite possible for the employee in one context to view that relationship as consensual, but after the relationship falls apart, they may not have that same view. And and things that happened in the past, they'll start to think about them, and as they talk to others, they begin to think more about that power imbalance, and their mind changes, and what an employer ends up with is actually a wrongful dismissal, lawsuit, a sexual harassment lawsuit, for which they are vicariously liable uh, as an employer. So a very, very serious uh, problem and issue for employers. Absolutely. And then hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. And so whether it have whether it was a consensual relationship or not, if there is a power imbalance and the, the employer breaks up with a subordinate and she's a female, uh, she can come back and actually say it was it was sexual harassment, even when it wasn't, correct? That's right. Well, I mean, obviously, you still have to prove that sexual harassment, uh, it, it, uh, when a relationship happens between a subordinate and a superior, I think there's almost going to be a rebuttable presumption that uh, this power imbalance created a situation where the consent was not uh, genuine. And that's, that's why I always use the example of Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. If the most powerful person on earth shows you affection and attention, it's going to be very hard uh, to not view that as genuine. Was it genuine? Who knows? Uh, but I, I, know <laughs> I thought for you knew. Sure, <laughs> I, I, I know for sure her attitude about it changed after the fact. And I know there was a very big debate about this uh, in, in the feminist movement after this um, story broke out as to whether or not she, you know, she's a woman and it was consensual and therefore we should give... Uh, Bill Clinton a pass. Um, I don't know who the President of the United States could enter into a uh, affair with other than someone that is equally as powerful as him in the workplace, which in his workplace was nobody. Exactly, exactly. So in other words, though, um, basically to, to summarize this, uh, there there should be very strict sexual harassment policies in place for employers. Yeah, I would say employers should have, every workplace should have a harassment policy that includes not just sexual harassment, but protects employees in the workplace and the customers and and management from all forms of harassment. That that is a definite uh, on the top of the list. The second thing to look at is what policy are we going to implement if there is a workplace relationship? Uh, A lot of workplaces don't have policies forbidding them. 
Uh, some have policies, though, that require changes to be made if a relationship arises. So, for example, one friend of mine who uh, works with their spouse in a very large uh, company, uh, they do not have shifts at the same time. They are not permitted to work uh, at the same time and, strangely, not permitted to take vacations at the same time. Oh, wow. Which is Yeah, which really kind of makes the having the personal relationship a little bit challenging. Now, I'll pause to note here that when you have employees who are in marriage-like relationships, whether it's common law or married, one of the things that an employer has to be worried about is, of course, the Human Rights Code protects people from discrimination on the basis of marital status. So if you start uh, saying, well, you can't uh, you know, work in this area or take this promotion or get this benefit, uh, because you're in a relationship with another employee, an employer even has a problem there that they might be viewed as being discriminatory towards uh, people who are in a relationship. Right. And could somebody be fired um, wrongly or, or correctly uh, for having an ex, uh, uh, an affair, whether it be extramarital or not, um, in the workplace with somebody? I think you could have situations, obviously it'll depend on the facts, but you could have situations where there, there, there would be a proper termination for cause, depending what happened. Um, again, another famous case that sticks out of my mind is that uh, fairy, the Queen of the North. Uh, wasn't that the fairy that sank? Do you yes. remember that? Yes. An allegation there that the fairy ran aground while two of the people on the bridge were involved in sexual activity. Right. Um, that came out during the inquest. In a, in a non-unionized shop, if something like that were to happen, you know, customers were to come in and discover employees uh, having sex or something on the workplace during work hours, I could see that potentially being uh, grounds for uh, cause for dismissal. But again, it'll really depend on a whole bunch of factors. What I would caution anyone who has a situation where they think, I need to terminate someone for their behavior on uh, um, at work, or an employee who thinks I'm being terminated basically for, for behavior at work, definitely get legal advice before terminating. And if you are terminated, get legal advice before signing any sort of settlement or release of claims and things like that. Right. Well, it's great advice, Paul Mendes of Mendes Les Brents Law Firm in Vancouver, British Columbia. Always appreciate uh, your uh, your information. You're a bastion of knowledge, and I and I really appreciate <laughs> you coming on Thank the show so much. on Chinese really New Year. Oh, well, always, always a pleasure. We'll get you back. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Joining me on the line from Nelson, British Columbia, is Pauline Daniel. She's the author of the book, Tuesdays with Jack which is an inspirational memoir and a special valentine for somebody. Good evening, Pauline. How are you? I'm very well. Really happy to be here. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you. So I understand that you wrote the book Tuesdays with Jack as a valentine to your grandson, Jack. Tell us about that. What inspired you to write this book? My book is a love story. It's a tribute to my brilliant little grandson and our relationship. And um, to my son and daughter-in-law, they are the loves of my life. Jack and I spent Tuesdays together from the time he was a baby until he went to school. When Jack started to talk, he amazed and delighted me with the things he had to say. And I just had to share them, so I did on Facebook. And I called my post Tuesdays with Jack. Um, suddenly, and I was quite surprised at how quickly it had a following, 
It made people feel good, and they told me. And they encouraged me to do more with my posts. They gave me ideas and uh, supported me. And they fueled my, my desire to write a book. It just wouldn't go away. On the day that Jack started kindergarten, I started to write. And the magic in this little book is that everyone involved brought love. You can feel it when you hold it. I, I call it goosebump love. <laughs> That's lovely. It's an unconventional <laughs> Valentine. And your book not only deals with being a first-time grandparent, but the perspective that being a grandparent gives you on parenthood. Can you tell mm-hmm. our listeners a little bit more about that perspective? Okay. I can anticipate most things. Becoming a grandmother just absolutely blew me away. It, it was such a huge and all-encompassing love. My son's son, flesh of my flesh, all of that. And I, I really still can't believe that I'm actually someone's grandmother. It happens so fast. As a mom, I was concerned with the next steps, the next phase, what outfit he's going to wear, what his little voice is going to sound like. And, of course, cleaning fingerprints on toasters seemed very important back then. I didn't have that with Jack. I played with him. We're silly together. His fingerprints on my fridge delight and bring me joy. It's a powerful shift in perspective and in being, being more present and in the moment. I've read the longer that we're in present time, the slower we age. So being present in the moment with your grandchildren or any children just might be an anti-aging formula. It certainly has been my gift. And so do you think this is a, uh, a bit of a parenting guide? There really aren't any parenting guides out there. And a lot of parents put the focus on, well, uh, their iPhones, perhaps. They stick their children in front of videos. We know that's not healthy for them, especially under the age no. of 10, according to research. Right. And they're not thinking of the moment. And they're also thinking about what everybody else thinks. So do you think being a grandparent has taught you that, in retrospect, you may have been a better parent or you might have been able to be a better parent with things that you've learned now oh definitely i will take that guilt to my grave (laughs) no No. (laughs) being present (laughs) put your phone down honestly put your phone down and be with these children be with these children they're delightful they're brilliant and we all have these brilliant little beings in our lives they're going to save our planet (laughs) absolutely so what are some of the beautiful messages or beautiful things your little grandson jack had said to you that astonished you Well, if I might, I would absolutely love to read an essay out of my book. For sure. Okay. This one is called Gymnastics Class. It's the first essay I wrote. It has my grandmother's energy in it, and I absolutely love it. Gymnastics Class. What was that song I was singing, Bubba? He calls me Bubba. I ran out of batteries in my head, so I guess I run out of songs. Your brain ran out of batteries? Only for songs, nothing else. Jack, age four. My grandmother had five grandchildren. She called us by each other's names. She was a young grandmother, so she wasn't confused. Our names just didn't come up fast enough. And then she laughed. If she was going to scold us, it was gone in her laughter. She laughed at herself. What a gift. She was the most important woman in my life, and I still miss her. I understand her laughter and where it comes from because these days it's happening to me. Jack and I are at gymnastics, an activity we have scheduled for Tuesday afternoons. It's a busy place. A huge room filled with trampolines, balance beams, and bars. Kids of all ages are running, jumping, and swinging on the equipment. It's nonstop for 90 minutes, and Jack expects me to keep up and watch his every move. Sometimes I admit I'm watching the clock. 
A woman leans over to ask me Jack's name. I say, Sean, that's his dad's name. And then quickly correct myself. No, 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 his name is Jack. Where did my mind go? It must have run out of batteries for names, that's for sure, including my grandson's. The woman looks at me as if I'm slightly bonkers. She probably <laughs> wonders if Jack is safe with me or if I'm actually his grandparent. I am shocked and amazed that my brain can switch in that way. The color of Jack's hair, the shape of his head, the way he runs. It's Sean. My brain and my heart love, see, and know two children. And it happens in a flash. I am my grandmother. The moments are fused. There's a holy sacredness in this experience, and that's why laughter is so appropriate, even though others may think we're off our rockers. It's a grandmother moment, not to be analyzed or diagnosed, but appreciated and enjoyed. Let's laugh. There's no language for this. Jack's right. Sometimes our brains just run out of batteries. Oh, that's so lovely. Some people might be uh, nervous to become a grandmother because it could be associated, or a grandfather, because it could be associated with aging. But it sounds like becoming a grandparent has the potential to keep you young. I think it does. You're just so filled with love and gratitude, and it splashes over everything and everyone around you. You're just walking on air. (laughs) That's lovely. Now, you're you're also a life coach for women, and you call yourself a follow-your-heart coach. What does that mean? It means your heart is your compass. It holds your desires and a deep inner knowing about many, many things. Women juggle busy and complicated lives, and it's so easy to discount the wisdom and guidance that's always there for you. When you slow down, pay attention, and begin to listen to your heart, You stop that spinning energy of self-doubt. You clear the muddle, make stronger decisions and choices, and you trust yourself. And that's what I do. I help women to trust themselves. And it sounds like you help them to live in the moment as well, because as you said earlier, many women are living hectic lives, very, Mm -hmm. very busy, Mm -hmm. multitasking, and they may not make decisions that are heartfelt, if you will. That's right. And when we live in the moment, we can actually hear our answers and feel them, and, and they come to us in a nanosecond. And even for women who are facing tragedy or extremely difficult times, how would you, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that they hold all the answers. Okay? Um, something very interesting happened, and that wasn't that long ago, because when a woman comes to see me, I tell her immediately that coaching is all about you. It's all about you. And this woman looked at me and said, in my life, nothing is about me. Oh, coaching oh, is. Yeah, it that, is. That's heartbreaking. How can people mm-hmm. and women who want to follow their heart get in touch with you? Right now, the best way is on um, TuesdaysWithJack.com. Excellent. So that's TuesdaysWithJack.com. Okay. It's a beautiful oh, book. Right. Your message is inspiring, and it's wonderful, and I recommend parents and grandparents out there, new and old, pick up that book and read it. And in fact, we're going to be giving out a couple of copies of the book tonight. So if you would like a copy of Tuesdays with Jack, give us a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Pauline Daniel, author of the book Tuesdays with Jack, an inspirational memoir. Thank you so much for joining me on the Sunday Night Health Show. 
My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Maureen. You're very welcome. I am delighted to have on the line with me Dr. Jess. She's a Toronto-based sexologist. She's been a guest on this program before. She has a PhD. She's an author and a television personality as well at Playboy TV. And she did a bang-up job on a TEDx talk called Monogamish. Good evening, Dr. Jess. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad you're here. You know, one thing, uh, life is hard, you know, and one of the biggest issues in life is that we don't accept other people and, and sometimes we judge them. And I heard the most horrific story about a young psychiatrist who was falsely accused um, by, by another one of his colleagues. And as it turned out, his colleague was not open to his own sexuality. And so he decided to tear somebody down. And we were talking about it further. And I said, you know, we, there's always a reason for behavior. And I felt the one colleague who had taken the other one down, he had shame around his own sexuality. He felt he was going to be judged by other people. And so he built this armor around him. And that included tearing other people down or taking other people down, which often happens. So we judge other people for whatever reason. We judge who they marry, where they live, what their children do. And as it turns out, we judge them based on something else, too, which you're going to talk about tonight. That's right. We judge on first impressions. And sometimes it's a matter of just sorting through all the data we have, all the stimulus around us. But it's interesting because this autotrader.ca study just found that the type of car you drive affects how people see you in terms of relationship material and your personality. So if you drive an SUV, you're seen as marriage material. People see you as attractive and commitment-friendly. Same thing if you if you drive a reliable sedan, you're seen as stable. But if you drive a sports car, 61% of people assume that you aren't looking for a relationship. You're just looking for a fling. And, and you know, the first impressions matter because we are not very likely to change our view of others from bad to good. That's what the data says. So we're judging on the outside when you, you know, look at cities like, like Vancouver and Toronto where more people are reporting that they're feeling lonely. I wonder if we can stop and think, should we be making these snap judgments? based on external markers. Exactly. And it says, you know, that judgment says I'm be- or tries to convince a person that I'm better than you. Uh, you know, when I think about the type of a car that a person has, I think, um, you know, can not, I don't think can they afford it, but I, I wouldn't, I would think that's a smart car to drive, you know, to buy a secondhand car. But somebody might be judged by because they have a secondhand car, for example, as opposed to purchasing a brand new one. But, you know, these are smart financial decisions, the type of car a person buys may very well be a smart financial decision. And what's the number one or number two issue in relationships? Finances. Right. Absolutely. And and the big issue with finances is that we don't really talk about it. And fin- finances are tied to your family values, to your cultural values, to personal values. And that's why it's such an emotional issue for most people to talk about. And, and you know, like everything in relationships, we don't tend to talk about it until there's the problem. There's a problem. And that's why if we could just have young people, people who are moving in together, people who are newly engaged, about to get married, talking and having these, these significant conversations about challenging issues before they become challenging issues, you'll probably see that the challenge of these issues subsides. 
right? It's not going to be as intense if you plan for the future. So let's say like discretionary spending. So I like to spend on, um, let's say I like to have, you know, a treat, a $5 coffee every morning. And my partner might think, oh, that's so frivolous. But I might explain the why of that coffee. I might say, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have a lot of money, but the one thing my mom spent money on was coffee. And so it feels important to me. Well, my partner is probably going to respond differently to that explanation but if I don't communicate it to him or her, how are they to know? Exactly. And some people are taught that um, finances or, or lack of money or money, good money management is, or if you don't show people that you have money, that there's some shame associated with that, that you have to, you know, we have a lot of people living beyond their means, means in Canada. We have a lot of people who are in an ex- a tremendous amount of debt. If the interest rates mm-hmm. go up further, they're not going to be able to afford their houses or their mortgages, and that's going to affect their family. And, you know, much like sex, we have a hard time talking about finances. Now, the other thing is I remember I had a patient in my clinical practice whose husband was uh, cheating on her and she would catch him. And so she made the family get a minivan in hopes that that would provide immunity to his cheating, that women would look at the minivan and think he's got kids. <laughs> but you know what? Often guys post their pictures of their, you know, kids are, an, are a magnet to <laughs> for a guy, right? Because women look at that and they say, um, you know, oh, he's, he's a nice father. He's got his kids there. They don't post pictures of their own wives. We know that. Some of the data supports that. Uh, so they never post themselves with a woman, but they typically will post themselves with kids. Needless to say, the minivan was by no means immunity for infidelity in the relationship and, and the relationship ultimately broke down. But we have these false beliefs or we think we can control things because we are afraid to talk about them and where, and we I'm not sure why people judge others. I'm sure a lot of us do it unwittingly, but but what are some of the reasons you find that people judge other people and their well, relationships? We yeah, we certainly all do it. I wouldn't I count myself in that company. It is it is a natural inclination to judge people, and there are several reasons. Number 1, we're trying to compute how we measure up. We are wondering, are we good enough when it comes to relationships? Are we happy enough? Are we having enough sex? Is the sex we're having wild enough but not too wild because we've got narrow definitions of what's allowed sexually in relationships? So number one, we're trying to compute and see where we rank. Number two, often a judgment is a reflection of our own insecurity. And so I know that I encounter this if I feel jealous in business or critical, sorry, if I feel critical of someone else doing well in business, I often have to stop myself and say, okay, what is it that they have that I wish I had? And it's okay to feel jealous. It's okay to feel insecure. Everybody feels jealous or and insecure at some point in time. It's what you do with that jealousy that matters. So do you use that jealousy to tear somebody else down? Do you use that jealousy as a weapon in your relationship? Do you accuse your partner and, you know, demean them because you're feeling jealous? Or do you go to them and say, hey, I'll give you an example. You know, when, for example, when I saw you talking to that woman, you know, I felt like you you didn't introduce me. It made me feel like I wasn't that important. And that creates an opportunity for your partner to say to you, oh, babe, I'm so sorry about that. We were just in this intense conversation. I love you. You have nothing to worry about. Right. And... When you respond to insecurity or jealousy with love, it just deepens intimacy. It certainly does. Um, that's that is the thing. Um, you know, it's we 
we, we people also fear that you're going to judge them. I don't know if you get this um, or not, but um, I certainly get this quite a bit. And I'm reading this from an email, uh, and it's an email about how her husband has cheated on her, and so now they're looking for counseling. But they've been to a, a therapist, and the therapist has never mentioned the sex issue. So she said they're looking for somebody who is, isn't going to pussyfoot around with the dirty words, who isn't going to fall back on how bad of a person he is or I am for staying with him or put my husband in the bad cheaters category. We are looking for somebody who won't judge us. You know, I get that question a lot. Mm. I don't know if you get that um, from your clients as well. Absolutely. And, you know, therapists and counselors and medical professionals, as you know, like we're not immune to judgment. And I, I think it's so great just to think about therapy, that this person is advocating for what they need instead of being fearful of their therapist. Because I think when you, you know, you look back 30, 40 years, people were fearful of their therapist. They didn't know what their therapist was writing. They just did what their therapist said. But now it's more of a conversation and you are the client and you can go to your therapist and say, this is the support I'm looking for. So I'm glad this person is looking for that support. I certainly hope they can find it because you can't talk about relationships generally without talking about sex, just like you can't talk about sex without talking about relationships. I can't tell you how many couples I've met who come to me and say, oh, we have the perfect relationship, everything is great, life is perfect, it's just the sex. Oh, no, 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 it's only the sex that's the problem. Well, sure enough, five minutes into the conversation, you see all the other stuff that underpins the sexual problems, the resentment, the lack of communication, the unfair division of labor, the uncommunicated expectations, and then you see that sex is in fact a symptom of the relationship issues. It is not the core problem. That's exactly right. Well, Dr. Jess, thank you so much. Dr. Jess is a Toronto-based sexologist, PhD, author in television personality. Check out her TEDx talk, Monogamish. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Dr. Jess. My pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And how can people get in touch with you? You can find me at happiercouples.com. That's where I have all of my video courses and then Sex with Dr. Jess on all social media. Wonderful. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.